This month's episode of Tesla's Island Discs is sponsored by Test Project. Test Project is the world's first 100% free test automation platform for web, Android, iOS, and API testing, trusted by over 80,000 users in the testing community. Test Project helps testers and developers ensure quality with speed by eliminating maintenance and setup hassles and empowering Selenium and Appium with AI self-healing technology. No matter your skill set, Test Project has all the tools you need to ensure a top-notch automation experience using advanced codeless features or open source SDK compatible with native Selenium APIs. To top it off, you also get to leverage their useful add-ons library, out-of-the-box beautiful test reports, seamless integrations into your CI-CD pipelines, and worldwide team collaboration options to boost efficiency, all of this at no cost. Try out Test Project today by visiting testproject.io or click the link in the episode description. Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Everyone and welcome back to another episode of Testers Island Discs, which is taking place during the Ministry of Testing UI Automation Week. If you're listening to this roundabout when the episode drops, then drop over to the Ministry of Testing website, where you'll find a whole load of workshops, experience reports, there's a masterclass, AMAs, all taking place this week. And if you're listening far flung in the future, most of this stuff, as usual, will be available on the Ministry of Testing website uh, for members to listen to. And this month on the podcast, we're delighted to welcome along a very special guest. It's Viv Richards. Viv is a retired West Indian cricketer who made his test debut in 1974 and is widely regarded uh, as one of the best. I think you've got the uh, the wrong Viv Richards. The, you, you got knighted in 1999. <laughs> no? Not oh, this is, this, is, this is annoying. I had a whole load of questions lined up about who the hardest spin bowler was you faced. But um, okay, um, let me just quickly... Um, Okay, let's, let's let's go for a different intro. I'll do this again. All right, here we go. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Viv Richards, who is an independent test consultant and trainer who, in better times, is an international conference speaker and organizer. And right now, he's spending more time than usual with his wife and five children. Hi, Viv. Hey, Neil. How are you? <laughs> not so bad. Not so bad. Um, the name confusion must be an annoying one. You must get it all the time everywhere you go. Yeah, so it's uh, it got to a point where I've, I started getting um, sort of wished happy birthday via Twitter and LinkedIn and things. So I had to update my, um, my sort of biography. So it's uh, yeah, it's quite common. The other one is uh, Vernon Richards. I get confused for quite often as well. They're the famous. Uh, uh, v, yeah, a lot of V Richards in testing. A lot of very yeah. competent V Rich V Richards as well. Uh, yeah, Michael Bolton. Obviously, he has a lot of that as well. Showing his name with a singer and an actor. My name is not that common. If you Google my name, there's also a, I think like a Florida swim team coach and a doctor who fights Ebola in Africa. So I, I don't think I'm the best Neil Stud, but uh, yes. I mentioned you're at home a lot of the time now with five kids. Um, I have just the one and working at home during lockdown with one child can be a struggle. I imagine five is something of a juggling act. Horrific. Absolutely horrific, to be honest. It's uh, my wife, to be fair. She sort of, uh, you know, Tends to the children while I'm working, but still, we've got a three-year-old, and he just doesn't understand. So he's uh, he's into a lot of my meetings. He probably attends more meetings than myself, to be fair. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah, it can't be too, too long before teaching them to code and uh, see if they can, she can offload some of the work onto you, onto them. Definitely. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about automation, being it's the Ministry of Testing Automation Week. How shall I put this politely? I'll group myself in with this. Uh, you and I have been in the industry for a while, let's say. I'm not, <laughs> not going to call us veterans, but um, we've, we've seen automation come a long way. How's automation changed since you first started? Um, to be fair, it's, it's probably that there's been more of a shift on the, uh, the roles within the team that uh, tended to carry out automation rather than so much of a change within automation itself. So, um, you know, quite well, maybe a year or two back, there was a big fuss about um, like estets and this type of thing whereby, you know, you'd have um, people just focusing on automation rather than all things testing. Uh, and then you see like these startups and things whereby um, they don't need testers because their engineers are, uh, you know, they're able to do everything and all this sort of thing. But yeah, it's for me, it hasn't really changed that much. The thing that's changed is just the, the people who are carrying up the various testing duties, to be fair. Yeah, I've lived through the pain of job, my job being renamed into an SDET um, when effectively the job wasn't changing at all. They just, they'd heard the industry lingo and want to start calling us SDETs when um, it was more about the work we should have been doing, not what we were called. But one thing that I think has changed somewhat is uh, certainly some of the tooling that we use has, has matured somewhat. We'll get more into that tooling as we go on through the podcast, but let's get on with the order of business for today, which is that Viv has been stranded on the Tester's Desert Island with a choice of five songs that he's brought with him to best represent what music means to him. What's the first song you brought, Viv? Uh, so first song is Dexy's Midnight Runners, Come On Eileen. It's a song that, uh, being an 80s child, I, I remember quite fondly uh, growing up. Um, my dad used to play it quite often. And yeah, it's just a song that really makes me sort of uh, feel good, I guess, when I hear it. That was the unmistakable sound of Dexy's Midnight Runners with Come On Eileen. Now, Viv has joined us today to talk about the art of visual regression testing. Now, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with the concept of regression testing. What exactly is visual regression testing? So visual regression testing, um, you may may not be sort of familiar with the term um, visual regression testing. Maybe you know it as snapshot testing. Pretty much it's the same sort of thing whereby... Instead of like your traditional tests using Selenium, where you would perhaps uh, check elements exist or text exist on a page, um, visual or snapshot testing allows you to actually assert things like uh, colors and font sizes and that, how things actually look um, to the eye, if you like. So it, it's um, taking a snapshot of uh, a web page or an element even uh, at a point in time, and then the next time you run a test, or the check, uh, it's comparing that uh, snapshot with how the website currently looks. So that's it sort of in a nutshell. Yeah, it's covering for some of the weaknesses of, of tools um, and frameworks that use Selenium, whereby if in your Selenium test you say, uh, check that element X exists, um, 
it will say it will look through the, the the DOM of the page and go, oh yeah, I found that element, but it won't tell you whether that element is hidden behind something else, or it's the wrong color, or it's you know white text on a white background. Um, it a- captures some absolute gotchas. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that sort of um, so we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess, in a little bit uh, of time. But one of the things that sort of um, I've used it for before is, like as you say, you know, while you can sort of uh, verify the existence of an element you, you can't tell where that element actually is and we had an instance whereby um a user was unable to um complete a, a user journey for like of a service because they couldn't submit the form and actually the, the selenium checks were passing because the elements existed mm-hmm. but the way in which the elements have been styled meant that the button was actually um styled off the page so without using a tab and then guessing that the element was sort of highlighted the button you know, they didn't know how to actually proceed. So it's it can be a, an extra sort of thing to add to your tool belt. Um, but again, you know, just because you can do it, it's like anything, it doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. Um, but it's definitely something to sort of look at if you're, you know, like in UI tests, I think. Yeah, and there are a whole load of different tools that you can use to do visual regression testing, be they open source or commercial off the shelf or even building yourself. And we'll talk about a few of those um, as we go along just from our own experience, um, although I don't think we're going to draw attention to any particular ones. Uh, much like anything, you you need to evaluate the marketplace, see which one's going to do what you want it to do. But when you reach the point where you think you might want to implement some visual regression testing in a project, um, my mind always comes back to the famous or infamous test automation pyramid. Love it or hate it, it kind of encourages you to push as much testing as possible down to the lowest unit level of testing. Uh, and it says that the stuff at the peak of the pyramid, the UI stuff, is the most expensive, the most time-consuming. How do you judge whether something is worth pushing into a UI test? It, it really depends. You know, sometimes I know lots of people hate the test automation pyramid. Um, it's something that, that I like to sort of refer back to when I sort of see teams working and they, they rely in um, either on lots of uh, low-level tests and they don't have some UI tests or, uh, you know, in the reverse, like the ice cream cone pattern, whereby they have too many UI tests um, and then they're not getting that quick feedback. So it's, it's a balancing act and it's one of those things that you need to sort of weigh up. You know, every team is different and every project is different. Um, certainly when it comes to visual testing, it, it's tricky because like there are a number of different things you can do so you can you can either take a snapshot of a full page for example or of a portion of a page or an element so i think for me like the it, it's easier when you're looking at um individual elements to justify its value i think so for instance i, I worked with um a number of different banks and they all had their own like, branding so what we did was we were able to quickly check that the buttons and uh headings and things like that at the individual element levels are all sort of consistent with the branding that um, was important for that bank. So in that instance, even though, you know, it's tricky when you refer back to the test automation pyramid, because obviously that tries to encourage you to have less UI checks. But in reality, the fact that we had quite a few UI checks at the visual sort of test level, it probably would have looked wrong when you assess it against that um you know, test automation pyramid, but hmm. the sort of feedback that we got from uh, running those checks and the sort of cost it saved the company because, um, you know, the branding was really important for these banks. They could have lost a lot of money and, and custom. It, yeah, it, it was worthwhile. So it's one of those things. It depends on what you're trying to automate, doesn't it? I guess. Um, 
Yeah, like everything, it comes down to balancing sort of risk versus value. So yeah, what is what is the risk of us not having this? What would we miss? And does that matter if we miss those things? And that will yeah. help you judge whether or not something is worth it. I mentioned during the intro that um, a, a lot of the tooling in this area has matured somewhat in the past few years. I think back to literally 15 years ago when I was first trying to do some kind of snapshot testing. And in fairness, it was on desktop applications, but um, your snapshots were always like a full screen. And down to the fact that you had to make sure all of your test environments or your VMs were running the same screen resolution. Otherwise, your tests would just never, never work. Or if Windows Update popped up while you were testing and you know, a little balloon appears in the corner, all of your tests fail. Um, that sort of stuff. Like you say, you can, the fact that you can now drill down to a component or an element level makes this stuff a lot easier to control. And... Again, I mean, I might name a few tools as we go along, but some of the ones that I've seen, they've made it a lot easier than it used to, to, uh, for example, update your reference data. If a snapshot changes, it's like a one-click button to update your reference for the future um, yeah. rather than having to manually go off and save a load of screenshots. Um, I think if, it, if it's something that you, you've heard uh, bad things about in the past, I, I think you should revisit the marketplace uh, and try a few of the tools that are out there. Most of them have free, like 30-day or seven-day trials uh, and see what it can do for you. Definitely. As you say as well, you know, as as well as like tools are sort of uh, moved on and they've come on leaps and bounds. Um, it's also the way that we implement these websites as well. Of sort of, you know, you see a lot of like dynamic uh, driven websites and things like that now. So when you think of things like uh, WordPress and Drupal and that type of sort of open source CMS system for um, building websites, you know, probably when you looked at visual testing like 10, 15 years ago, um, it's probably quite basic. Um, as you say, you couldn't get down to the component level, but now a lot of these frameworks, whether they're open source or paid for, they allow you to also sort of cover dynamic elements and, and things that are really important when thinking about how, you know, websites and things are built these days as well. So it's definitely worth, as you say, revisiting um, what's on offer, I guess. Yeah, I'm coming out in cold sweat thinking about having to do loads of custom weights for Ajax to finish loading. <laughs> like in the mid-2000s, it's like the most horrible thing. But yeah, again, all, all the really basics are, are done for you a lot better than they used to. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, we'll talk a bit more about how you actually implement these tools in a bit. But first of all, um, something of a podcast first. We're into episode 44 now. This is the first time a song has ever been picked back to back by two consecutive guests uh, purely by coincidence um viv what's song number two so uh song number two it's a bit soppy apologies it's elton john your song and it was uh my and my wife's uh, wedding song or uh, first dance and you can tell everybody this is your song it may be quite simple but now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind That I put down the words How wonderful life is While you're in the world That was Elton John with your song, which... Being previously picked on the last episode by Deborah Reed as one of her wedding songs is, uh, I think it means it's now the eternal wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a bit in the last section about why you might choose to use visual regression testing tools. Um, I've actually used a couple recently. I've used a, a standalone one called Hapo, and I've used a tool called Percy, which has recently been acquired by BrowserStack. It used to be uh, independent, and it's now part of their, their suite. And there's a whole lot of others out there. Um, some of them cost more than others, but 
Uh, Viv, what do you think makes a good one versus a bad one? Um, it just depends, really. Um, it depends on what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to um, introduce it into, I guess. So what I mean by that is, um, what is it that you're trying to automate? Um, what are the skills within the team? How easy, um, yeah, how easy is it to actually get up and running with the tool? What's the community support like or documentation? Um, is it free? It's always a good thing, right? Um, it's, it depends really. Um, but for me, it's, does it support C-sharp? Because um, I really, that's probably uh, yeah one of my guilty, I guess it's not even a secret now. Most people know me as uh, like C-sharp, but yeah, I really like using C-sharp. And, and I try to avoid um, most things that contain a lot of bloat. Um, a lot of these tools contain lots of things that you may or may not need. And mm. to be honest, it's, yeah, I, I try to steer away from a lot of that stuff, the bells and whistles, because I think it's quite easy um, to get carried away spe- specifically. Like when you think of automation, like uh, my, my worry is always whenever you talk to people around automation or you introduce it into a company, people try to sort of automate things for automation's sake, just because they can, not because they should. So yeah, it's, it's weighing up a number of different things uh, for me. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of these tools are understandably built to demo well. So you'll get, you know, you'll download, there'll be a, a simple application. Normally it's one of these like to-do list application type things. And you're like, Hey, this is what it can do. But then you have to take the step from that to go, okay, but what do we want it to do? And can it do that? And as you say, what is going to be, for example, the cost involved with that? So for example, if one of these tools boasts that it can test on 10 different browsers for you simultaneously, but it charges for every single snapshot that it takes, then you know one, one check is suddenly 10 of your snapshots used up and <laughs> you're suddenly costing yourself 10 times more than you would if you were just testing on a single browser. And again, it comes back to risk. You know, If, if we just test on the three most popular browsers, um, it's only going to cost us a third as much and how much are we actually missing? Yeah, yeah definitely. And as you say, even if it can test on like 10 browsers, for example, it's as if that then tied into a particular um, sort of vendor. So when I think of, um, as you mentioned, Percy's been acquired by Browser Stack. So it works now tightly with Browser Stack. But if you then want to use something like Source Labs, how easy is it? I haven't tried myself to then use Percy with that or um, things like um, when you do find some differences, how do you manage those snapshots of the dashboards available? What, what's that sort of look like? So there's a number of different things to try and uh, consider, I think. Yeah, again, I've seen a few tools that have a lot of extra bells and whistles built in, like there'll be an interface within their dashboard that allows you to add comments and, you know, it's got, you can add emoji and stuff. It's like, well, actually, if I'm plugging it into my CI, I'm never going to see your dashboard unless I need to to dip in because something's gone wrong and our, we've already got a commenting interface in GitHub or whatever. So again, it's look past the things that are being dazzled in front of your eyes and look to what you're actually going to need to use day to day. And and a lot of that is going to be run it out for a trial. And I think you made a really good point at the start of the section where you said um, you can really judge a tool by the quality of its documentation. Like a lot of them, if you go into their docs, you could say at the top of the docs, well, actually show me your docs for C-sharp or whatever. And it will it will re, um, relay the documentation and say, well, these are the um, individual bits of code snippets you need to put in, uh, you know, your secrets and whatever uh, for C-sharp versus Java or whatever. Um, if, you, if, you, if the docs are good, generally the tools are quite good as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. What first made you decide that you thought you'd be better off building your own? Because obviously the, building your own has its own challenges. 
Yeah, so it was a combination of things, really. So at the time, I was working for a company where I was fairly new. Um, I was trying to sort of uh, make an impression, as you can imagine. Um, and I was trying to sort of push the idea of visual uh, testing. And there wasn't really any sort of noise from above, uh, you know, that they were interested in this type of thing. They were already struggling with um, introducing um, Selenium and Specflow, which is a .NET port of uh, Cucumber. And, yeah, so they were struggling to sort of get people on board with that. And so I thought, well, it's, it's going to be a bit of a struggle to try and get them to put their hand in the pocket. So I wanted to try and prove that, like, with a proof of concept that I could create something that would do some sort of just basic bike-for-bike -bike comparison to show there's some value to then justify, you know, further work in lock-in either to enhance what I built or to then um, get something off the shelf. It's always tricky, isn't it, when you're trying to introduce something to a, a company um, of any size. You want to try and show its value because people, especially these days, are trying to deliver at, at quite a pace and, yeah, mindful of costs and everything else. So it, it was just really about sort of trying to prove its worth as another way to check. And, and, and in particular, um, at that company, the way that the checks we mentioned earlier around sort of checking elements with Selenium, well, in this company, um, it was pretty much the checks that were being um, asked of us to, um, to implement. It was like checking text on a form, and it was just lots and lots of checks and, and lots of sort of things that wouldn't really add any value. And so... You know, I was thinking at the time, well, actually, if we can just do a visual check and in just like line, like four lines of code, we can say we know exactly what the text is and it's how it needs to be. And we can check it in different languages. But not only that, we also get like the colors and the layouts and all this other stuff. So it was just trying to prove a point that actually, you know, while it is a cost, there's an awful lot of cost being introduced by having to maintain these current Selenium UI tests. Mm. So that's pretty much why I did it. Um, I think at the time as well, there were a number of different tools. So I think Appy tools were sort of uh, about, but they, they didn't have as big a presence. So this was like two or three years ago, they didn't have as big a presence. Percy were around, but they were like a small startup, I think. And there were one or two others, um, sort of maybe a handful of other sort of open source things. But at the time, again, they were all sort of bike for bike comparison. Um, and these days, you know, as you mentioned earlier, again, tools have moved on. It's all around AI and self-healing tests and all this sort of uh, jazz these days, if you buy into all that stuff. Yeah, we keep banging on and on about value. And when it comes to automation, ROI on automation has always been really hard to prove. You know, how do you demonstrate the value that you are bringing with automation? And when you're using an off-the-shelf tool, at least, be it something like Percy, for example, that has a very clear dollar amount associated with it. You know, it's X dollars a month to, to use the tool. When you're building your own, it's not quite so easy to put a dollar amount on it. How do you demonstrate that you're using your time usefully? Yes, that was a tricky thing. And and the only way I could sort of, at the time, I, I recall sort of having the same sort of thoughts, how am I going to try and show its value if I'm trying to then use work time to build this thing and actually wasting their time rather than automating the things they want. Um, so what it actually turned out to be was um, something I worked on in my spare time and then took that once it was sort of in a reddish state and introduced it and sort of just updated through the tests. So it was sort of a, a big bang thing Um when I showed them it at uh, the place I was working, because I think if I tried to justify using work time to, um, you know, implement 
or at least sort of create the initial framework. I don't think I would have had the buy-in and that was another part of the problem, which was sort of, yeah, it, it probably in hindsight, looking back um, with all the great sort of tools out there and the open source tools, they've, they've come on a long uh, way. And I probably would be better just to try and invest some time in looking what was out there. But again, you know, two, three years ago, there wasn't an awful lot in this space and, and stuff that was, there was a lot of bad press online around visual regression testing, um, how it was sort of inaccurate and you'd have um, issues with um, anti-aliasing, you know, the way that um, things displayed on the screen. And of course, with bite to bite comparison, it, it can pick up pixels and it, it notices that stuff. So fail for things that to the human eye you wouldn't expect. And that's then where it starts to get messy and you have to look at things like tolerance levels and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it's tricky. Speaking of tricky, we're going to go on and talk about some more problems that you might have hurdles to overcome when you're using visual regression testing. But one of the hurdles we've reached is the halfway point of the podcast. What's your third song today, Viv? So my third song is Sting, Englishman in New York. Um, this, when again, it's soppy, apologies, but when we were getting married, we had a uh, string quartet and one of the songs that we asked them to play was Englishman in New York. Um, they actually never knew how to play the song, but they learned it especially for our wedding. It was a song that was played as my uh, wife walked down the aisle. So it's one of those that sort of uh, sticks with me. It's a good memory. Came here at my side. It everywhere I walk. I'm an Englishman in New York. Whoa. That's a first appearance on the podcast for Sting with Englishman in New York. Now, we were talking in the last section about how sometimes it can be difficult to budget for the time required to create automation, particularly around, around visual automation. Sometimes companies can go the other way completely and they'll say, we don't even have time to do any automation right now. We'll, we'll come back and do the automation later. Um, I've seen this problem without wanting to name companies or teams. I've seen a team who are so desperate to deliver a project quickly that phase one is we'll build the code and phase two is we'll write some tests behind it. Um, I'm sure you and I know that's not a good thing, but how do you avoid that happening? Yeah, so it's, it's tricky because I think even the, the people, uh, the teams that say, you know, we don't have time to automate, I think they know deep down it, it's the wrong decision. And I think sometimes because of various pressures um, to deliver, they, you know, they just have to get the thing or build the thing um but it's one of those things i think whenever i've sort of experienced that within teams what i've tried to do is just sort of work with them and show them how they can start to add um value up front so i think part of the problem like with people who say that statement is or what i've found is that the teams that say that statement are the teams that rely solely on the testers to write the automation mm. which in my opinion is, is wrong you know everyone within that team should believe in sort of quality and they should all want to test and ensure that they deliver a product that they're all sort of happy with. And so like it's around, I think, education. It's around sort of working with the teams to say, well, you know, we should all understand what it is that we're building and why. And like, we don't need to wait either 
for like until we've built the thing to test. There's so many things we can do up front, like testing designs, requirements. Um, once that you've agreed, like if you're working in a part of an agile team, you have like um, user stories with scenarios. But once you've decided that within your team, what the scenarios are, and they make sense, well, anybody should be able to pick up that ticket and introduce those tests. And in an ideal world, did um, if you've got a, um, like a story and you're going to develop a UI feature, well, ideally, they'd pick up the testing ticket first, introduce the tests, um, even at the UI level, and then they'd introduce the UI uh, feature, and then they'd run the tests, make sure they work. You know, there's no excuse, I think, for this. We don't have time. It's just one of those things. It's quite frustrating, <laughs> I find, you, but yeah, I think it's just all around dedication, working with teams and showing them that actually they can start to, even if they believe they don't have time to automate, you know, if they do things up front and invest a little bit of time up front, then they'll find actually they do have time and they'll save more time in the longer run. Yeah, I could think of a few people I'd like to play this section for <laughs> without belaying my project too much that I, was, that I was talking about. The same team who said they didn't have time to automate then turned around to me and said, well, actually, we've just discovered there are about 20 different browsers and devices we want to certify against. And we've only got one tester and we don't have any time to do the certification. Uh, can you find us some more testers? And uh, to that, my first response was, well, it doesn't need to just be a person who's called a tester that could do this. If you understand what it is that you're trying to certify, you can get anybody to do that. And also, had we had this discussion at the beginning, we would have said, actually, let's build out a platform that will automate this. And then we don't have a discussion about who's going to test it because it's tested as part of CI at every single build. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that said, that said, I mean, I've also seen situations where uh, teams have failed to deliver projects because they're so absolutely set on having the perfect set of, you know, acceptance tests that are fully automated and UI driven that they can play to stakeholders. Um, sometimes stakeholders who don't even care. <laughs> they, they, think, they think they want to prepare this perfect little show reel of all their tests. Um, and in doing so, their project slips two or three months. Yeah, that's one of the things as well in reverse I've seen is that like, it's nice that people care, but like whenever I've seen instances like that, it's where again, teams aren't working smarter and working together. So you'll have people working in isolation. So um, again, in previous um, in a previous place I've worked, basically the testers never spoke to the developers. And it wasn't a problem whereby the testers then were trying to play catch up, but the testers were automating lots of different things because they could, not because they should. And then, yeah, they, they were struggling to actually get things delivered within a sprint. And it's because they were just automating too much. Like they were checking all the text on pages and the tests were becoming quite painful to sort of implement and maintain as well. And it is, yeah, it's, I think when teams work together, then a lot of these problems around not having time or having too many tests at the wrong layer, it, it can be avoided. It's just about having that sort of conversation about, well, what values is adding? Can we push a test further down the stack? You know, what is the risk if we don't introduce this type of track? Um, so, yeah, I think if teams just sort of like collaborate and communicate better, then a lot of these things can be avoided. I don't think tools are the answer to, you know, a lot of these problems. 
I swear at least once an episode I say that whatever it is, it's a people problem. <laughs> I don't think I'm the first to say it. But uh, yeah, a lot of those are really useful checks and balances that you could put in place. I'm certainly in a position right now where I am overseeing three different teams who each have their own challenges. Um, one of those challenges, there are not enough people who wear a hat called test to do the testing that's being asked of them. And yeah, it should be about those people being able to uh, consult with their team and coach them and, and help the team as a whole to build the automation that's required. Definitely. So before we move into the final section of today's podcast, let's talk about your fourth song pick, Viv. So my fourth uh, song is Dreamy T Feeler. I've absolutely no idea why I picked this song. I, I really like it. Um, I think it's quite catchy. It's got a good beat to it. And yeah, it's pretty much why I chose this song, really. Sheila goes out with her mate Stella. It gets pulled all over her fella. Cause she says money ain't no better Than the next man kicking up us Drunk she stumbles down by a river Screams cold in London None of us heard her coming Guess the carpet weren't rolled out It's over, it's over So this is a short story about the girl Georgina Never seen a word That was Sheila by Jamie T Now at the recent test.bash online Viv You took part in one of the web API automation challenges with Beth Marshall. Uh, there's a video on the Ministry of Testing Dojo. If people want to catch up, I'll link to it in the show notes. This involved you doing some remote pairing, which I guess is something people have found themselves doing more over lockdown. People have you know paired with each other side by side. How does remote pairing differ or offer more challenges than uh, side by side? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's quite an interesting one. Um, not only was it sort of the challenge of remote pairing. So I, I'd never met uh, Beth or spoken to Beth before uh, doing that challenge. We actually sort of spoke briefly on the um, the club forum and I was sort of looking to pair with someone. Beth was stuck, so we sort of um, agreed that we'd work on what she'd already done. And it, it was tricky, but what we tried to do was um, use GitHub. So we'd use that as uh, source controls. We could try and sort of make it easy to share things. And, and we tried to sort of have regular catch-ups, so we'd both take notes as we were trying to um, approach the problem. We'd sort of catch up and share our thoughts on it, whether it's a good or bad idea, then we'd go off and implement those uh, checks. And we'd just have regular updates, um, maybe you know once every few days or something like that. So it was challenging, but it was good to sort of, um, you know, certainly good to pair with someone that you've never met before on, you know, uh, a challenge that you've never attempted for as well it's really good yeah i need to encourage beth to come on this podcast sometime i only became familiar with beth myself uh, probably late last year at one of the mot meetups i remember she was uh, giving some uh, a talk she's also got a a short mini series of podcasts that she's done herself called the seven habits of highly successful testers which is a very similar interview series where they talk about what the key skills are that testers need i'll link to that in the show notes um Hopefully, she's got a musical hat and she wants to come on sometime. But yeah, all, all these challenges you discuss, are obviously, like I say, people have had to uh, encounter these during lockdown as well. A lot of it is around communication. Again, it's, it's always a communication issue. But um, I think one of the things is to try and make that communication as asynchronous as possible. So making sure it's a lot less mental hassle if you just say, you know, I'll drop your line when I'm done with this section and then you can pick it up rather than saying, let's meet at this time on this day in this room Um which, you know, people have their own, um, you know, kids or things you have to do. Um, finding finding ways so that you can respond in your own time and then you don't feel like there's too much uh, pressure on you. 
Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things. So like when we were taking notes, what we tried to do was we'd actually share those notes within the readme of the repository. So then when someone had spare time, they could then see what had or hadn't been sort of done. They could then leave their thoughts. So we, you know, we didn't want to sort of apply, as you say, any pressure to each other because life, you know, the jobs, family and that sort of thing. So it was very much, we approached it sort of when we could, we'd, try and help out but to be fair it was beth's project you know beth was sort of running with it and i was just there to try and uh, assist her as she was getting sort of um various thoughts on uh, how she should approach a, a problem or if you got stuck using uh, postman other tools are available <laughs> <laughs> it's actually been quite an interesting thing because um like i've been in my current role um i'm a contractor and i think it's been 11 months so I joined a company that's in a different, I say different country. I'm in Wales, it's in England. But I've sort of been working with hundreds of people, all remote. Um, and quite often it's involved pairing. And again, it's like sort of reaching out to these people that you don't know. You know, you've got to try and make these introductions and you've got to sort of try and help them and, and teams to sort of be able to get around various problems. And it's, I think as bad as it's been people sort of in lockdown and having to adapt i think some of the skills that they, they learn or would have learned from you know remote working would be invaluable because especially when i was in an office if i was working with teams and things i'd be like as i was trying to sort of work with the teams i'd be looking at body language and various things that you just can't do you know remote hmm. so it's, it's interesting how people have approached the various challenges and things um, just relying on tools, which I always try to uh, avoid where possible. Yeah, it's certainly different. Everyone uh, working remotely, even though many of us have been doing it for for close to a, a year now. <laughs> I don't know whether it feels like longer or shorter than that, but uh, it's it's hard to believe it's been a year. Um, in that time, of course, uh, everything has shifted online that that can shift online, in, including things like events. Uh, and you're someone who's spoken at events before and uh, organised some yourself. Have you dipped your toe into the world of online meetups yet? Um, not meetups. So I've spoken at a few conferences and attended a few conferences. Um, not meetups yet. I tried to host one, I think, back in March. And uh, it was at the point where a um, quite a popular video um, sharing site, not even video sharing, streaming, I don't even know what you call it, Zoom, basically, we, we were getting... <laughs> people bombing into our rooms and hurling abuse and all sorts of nonsense before they tightened up on the security, which is a lot better now, thankfully. But um, yeah, since then, I haven't really attended some. Um, but yeah, I, I'll be honest, I enjoyed the, um, not just because I'm on here, but I enjoyed the automation week where we were sort of doing the experience report. That was quite fun. But as for other, um, like other conferences, I find it quite strange because you're sort of presenting and there's no interaction. You can't really see the audience People aren't so forward in sort of um, asking questions and things. And even if they are asking questions because you're presenting, you can't really see what people are asking. So I find it quite a, yeah, I find it quite a strange experience. Just why like the automation week was quite good because you'd have a, someone sort of there interacting and sort of who's hosting it and chatting with you. And you'd be trying to then, if you're a parent in my case, chatting with them as well. So it was like more of a three-way discussion. It wasn't just you speaking to, you know, there was a silence. So it's, yeah, I find it very odd, to be honest. Um, all that being said, I plan to speak at a few events this year, but yeah, I'm trying to limit the online stuff, to be honest. Yeah. 
But like I say, it's all about the different formats that you can offer it in. And again, to come back to what we said at the start about the fact that we're now in the Ministry of Testing UI Automation Week, um, there are all sorts of different things on offer, be it workshops or um, something you can sit back and watch, um, depending on what your interaction level is. I don't think this is ever going to be the way people always want to do it in the future. I think if we've learned nothing else, it's that we're all eager to get back into a room as soon as it's safe to do so. Uh, yeah. But I'm someone who, for example, in my annual objectives, I boldly wrote down last year, you know, I want to give a talk at X number of conferences and there are barely X number of conferences running, but uh I am at the point now where uh, I did make a pre promise on a previous episode that I was going to do some online speaking. Uh, that is definitely going to happen. Not before this episode goes out, but maybe not long after that. Uh, watch this space. You may hear that I will give, give my first conference talk in uh, sort of 18 months or so. So that will be, uh, be good. Uh, Test anyway. automation week is still waiting for uh, submissions. It's still time, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't really say no, can I? <laughs> But before we wrap up, you've got one more song you could pick, Viv, uh, to wrap up your five selections today. Yeah, so this song uh, is Mark Owen, Four Minute Warning. And uh, before the days where we were all locked in indoors and uh, children were allowed to go to school, this was a song that my wife would play every single morning uh, just before trying to get the kids uh, dressed and to school. And she'd play it with Four Minute Warning until she was driving off in the car. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, quite a fond uh, memory of this song. Polly is said to be the next big thing In a high heel boots and a two inch earrings Heart of glass blondie sings in her ear You're a rock queen honey and we are here You come on Three minutes left to go Is this the end then? Message on your stereo Four minute warning Everybody wants to know what you That was Mark Owen with Four Minute Warning. Unbelievably, Mark Owen becomes the first member of Take That or Take That themselves to appear on the podcast. I would not have predicted that. So uh, thanks for the pick, Viv. One more thing you could pick to take to the island with you is a book to keep you company on those long and cold nights. Uh, what book are you going to bring with you? So apologies, this is a bit of a sort of shameless uh, self-plug, but the book I would take is Around the World of the Software Testers. So this is a book that um, basically I've put together and I've reached out to 80 software testers from around the world. And then these testers, um, they've basically shared their own stories. So they're asked, you know, what would you share with uh, the community, lessons learned, that type of thing. And the response has been fantastic. It's a free book on LeanPub. It's about halfway complete, I think, um, due to obviously lockdown and things. People have had other things to worry about. So I'm hoping to finish it this year at some point. But uh, the likes of Richard Bradshaw, Mark Wintergham, they're on there, Lisa Crispin, Mike Lyles, Janet Gregory. Um, but not only sort of well-known testers, there's also sort of, uh, new voices and that type of thing. I've just really not only enjoyed sort of putting it together, but the, the various things that people talk about, it's quite varied. And yeah, it's just been really enjoyable. So I'd probably take that if I could complete the book. Otherwise, it'd be a bit of a short read. Absolutely. I'm sure some other people have bought pens to the island with them and, and drawing equipment and stuff. So I, I think you could finish the book on the island as long as people can send their submissions and messages in bottles. That seems yeah. fine to me. 
it's absolutely the sort of thing that um, it's certainly the sort of thing that in the past I would love to have contributed to myself. Uh, but uh, as you say, I'm much more interested in hearing those new voices. I, I think people have heard enough of me. <laughs> There's enough of me on the internet. Should you want it? Uh, so uh, if you, if this is the first you're hearing of it, there's a link to the the book on Lean Pub in the show notes. Also, to bring things full circle, obviously I need to put the book into our collection on Goodreads, and the book wasn't on there, so I had to add it, which I have done. Uh, so it's on Goodreads now with a link back to Lean Pub. As soon as I added the book and I put that you're the editor, it said, "Did you mean Viv Richards, the cricketer, who's written <laughs> these biographies?" I'm, no, it's a, please do something great. This author, it's not that Viv Richards. <laughs> Oh, so I get just a small glimpse into into what life must be like for you. It's terrible. <laughs> but if people can't get enough of you, the genuine real testers article of Viv Richards, um, what are you up to um, during lockdown? Where, where might they find you? Um, so I'm often lurking on Twitter under the uh, tag 11VLR. Um, I'm also, also um, lurking in um, the club forum on the Ministry of Testing. So, yeah, if you sort of need any help or you just want to chat, I'm always there. Uh, and LinkedIn as well. So I, I sort of pretty much always accept all connections because you never know where, you know, which door will lead. So if you want to sort of connect on there, I'd uh, love to chat to you. Yeah. Fantastic. All those links are in the show notes. Um, you can get hold of the podcast at Testers Island. We'll be back at the end of March on March the 29th. I mentioned a few episodes back that we're always out on the fourth Monday of the month now. Uh, March is a five Monday month. We will be March the 29th. I broke the test cases. So <laughs> we will speak to you then. Uh, if you'd like to be on the podcast, there's links in the show notes to the form that you can fill out. There's also links to our Spotify playlist and the aforementioned Goodreads list, which brings our time to a close here. Thank you very much for coming, coming on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, as I say, when I close off all these episodes at the moment, I hope we get to see you in the, in the real world sometime soon. Fingers crossed. And I'll... And we'll be in your ears again, same time next month. Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Green Day. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island.